This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Good morning, God First Tottenham. It's so, so good to be here. It's, it's so strange. This is my first time with you. Uh, I've known Howard for about six or seven years now, and uh, he's become a really good friend and a massive encouragement in the gospel and in ministry. So it feels kind of overdue being here with you. Um, I'm here with my wife, C, who's at the back with my youngest child, Knox. We left our other two kids in London with grandparents. And... Um, we also have Zach, who's uh, at Grace now in London. So he, he managed to live four doors away from us, which was a bit weird. But um, <laughs> no, I absolutely love him. And he's, it's so good to have him with us. And um, I, want to, I want to speak to you guys. I'm going to drop into your series, more or less. Um, you've been considering the way of Jesus. And I want to speak to you from the first chapter of Mark's Gospel. If you have a Bible, please open it. And we're going to be thinking about the devotional life of Christ. I think um, Howard and I would be in agreement about the fact that there is a really pressing need in our day and age for a recovery of the understanding of what true discipleship is and looks like. And um, I think there is a lot of sort of mythical versions of Christianity and of discipleship out there. And so considering the way of Jesus, the demands of Christ, what it is that he, he calls us to, what it looks like to be a Christian, the ways in which your life is called to be distinctive. I'm absolutely convinced that there is, it's the, it is the most pressing need of the hour. I think when you consider the, um, the fact that the church in the UK has been on the back foot and has largely been declining for decades now, it doesn't seem to me to be accidental that that coincides with a loss in piety, a loss in understanding what it means to walk with God, a loss in understanding what it means to have intimacy with God, to know his word, and to be people who are able to embody discipleship in a visible way, and so that your whole life preaches the gospel. And you know it, but you also live it. And you are an embodiment of it, that you become like Christ. The word Christian means little Christ. And uh, the the early Christians were were called that as a kind of nickname because their life was so utterly distinctive from the people that they lived among. And uh, so I want to consider with you the, the example of Jesus himself in the devotional life of Christ as a provocation and a challenge to us all um, in terms of what it means to live as he did in terms of his prayer life. And uh, I want to read to you from Mark's Gospel in the first chapter. We're going to pick up from verse 29. But it's just important you understand, of course, that right in this, at the beginning of this Gospel, the, the Lord Jesus has um, just begun his ministry. And the chapter sort of opens with him being baptized and the this, this Spirit descending like a dove and the voice of God saying, this is my beloved Son. Then Jesus going out into the wilderness and being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he arrives in Capernaum. And when he's in Capernaum, 
a number of miracles begin to happen. And immediately, it's like his ministry um, hits the ground running. And there's a sense of urgency and a sense of pressing need and a sense of him beginning to, his, his life pouring out in these miracles and these, his ministry, which just bursts onto the scene. And we're, we're jumping in partway into that narrative in chapter 1 from verse 29. And it says this, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, I want to focus particularly just on one verse there. In verse 35, where it says that rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And just by way of sort of introducing our subject, I want to remind you, of course, how absolutely central and essential it is to the Christian life that you be a person of prayer. And I think if you consider this in the negative, first of all, a Christian who has lost their way with prayer, who doesn't pray, is a Christian who is in a sickly state spiritually. It ought to be clear to us that at the heart of the Christian faith is, this, is a relationship, a love relationship of intimacy with the Father. And prayer seems to me to be the beating heart of what it means to, to know God and to walk with him. And a Christian who has forgotten how to pray or who is struggling in their prayer life is without doubt in a sickly state. Now, I don't think that's a place in which we ought to experience Condemnation, the Lord is clear that um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a sense in which we know, when we know our desperation and need, there's the hope of the grace of God to come and revive us and to awaken us. And the flip side to that, of course, is to say that it is believers and Christians who have been faithful in prayer, who have known God in prayer, who have had an immense impact upon the world. And many reasons could be given for that. I think, for one thing, if you're a person who, who, who walks in faithfully in prayer, you're somebody who knows God. God wants to be known, and he wants you to walk with him. Like it said of Enoch in the early chapters of Genesis, that he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And uh, it says in Galatians 5 that we are those who, who, who should keep in step with the Spirit. And it seems to me that, that believers who who know what it is to pray, are people who know God and who also then their life is, is, is marked by humility. I, I often think that um, the reason, the greatest reason why we fail to pray 
is pride, isn't it? For the simple reason that prayer is dependence and the failure to pray is, is, is birthed out of a, an unwillingness to depend entirely upon God. And I could also add that people who are, who are faithful in prayer grow in their holiness. They experience the sweetness of what Martin Luther described as the Christian life being, the whole of the Christian life being a life of repentance. And I, I don't think that it's possible to walk in that characteristic repentance and humility and, and increasing sight of Christ as the one who is holy and who we are wanting to become like unless we're people of prayer. And so I know that all of us feel uh, an inadequacy in this, but this is why we're looking at Jesus, the perfect man, and why we want his example to be the one in which we walk. Now, I, I suspect that many of you even as I've just opened up the subject, are conscious that you're experiencing the kind of fraying that happens in your life through prayerlessness. I, the year that we, when we first got married, my wife and I, uh, we went on honeymoon. We borrowed um, my in-law's second car, their Volkswagen uh, Polo, a little dumpy uh, old beta car. And uh, we drove down to Devon and back and um, it was only when we got back home from our honeymoon that we, we, we glanced at the tires on this car and realized that not only were they bold, but the wire structure of the tire was exposed as all the rubber was wearing away. And I don't know what kind of plot this was for my father-in-law. There's something at work under the scenes there. But I was, um, I, I was amazed that we actually got away with our lives after this honeymoon. And in many ways, that's a picture of what your life can be like when you are not walking with God prayerfully, that you become frayed and various symptoms begin to mark you. You notice an increase in chronic and and low-level or or, um, even debilitating anxiety since it's obvious through the scriptures that anxiety and prayer um, are in many ways opposites, that there's a sense in which prayer delivers us from our worries And you may be experiencing the fraying effects of prayerlessness in that you carry worries and anxieties with you that you shouldn't have. You may be experiencing the loss of direction in your life that comes through prayerlessness. I think when when we are not walking with God, we begin to feel that kind of anomie, that sense of not knowing where we're going in life and, and wondering what we are here for. Because we begin to wander and begin to lose direction. And you may also just feel that, that coldness, that distance that comes in your relationship with God when we lack the intimacy with him that comes through prayer. And this is why I want to press upon you as we look at Jesus that there are few things more important for us to consider than to follow him in this. And it ought to strike you as amazing right at the outset, that Jesus Christ himself depended upon the Father through the action of prayer. And he's the Son of God. If there was anyone who ever lived who did not need to pray, you would think it would be Jesus. And yet he walks in prayer. One of the, um, a preacher called Kent Hughes said this about this passage. He said, One of the reasons Jesus did this, in other words, one of the reasons he prayed, 
was because he wants us to live our lives on the same basis. If Jesus prayed in order to live a godly life, full of power, so must we. This is an overpowering argument. Jesus is the eternal God incarnate, the creator of all, who holds everything together by his power, yet he still lived by and in prayer. I find that deeply provocative. And I want to, I want to consider with you four aspects, practical aspects of his prayer life. And really, we want, to, we, want to, we want to ask the question, what made his prayer successful, I suppose? But really what we're interested in is not just the mere practice of, of prayer, but the heart that lay behind these practices and what motivated him to act in the way he did when it came to prayer. And I want to show you these four things. Here's the first. Mark tells us, first of all, that Christ got up early. It says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark. Now, when Jesus um, followed this kind of this practice of rising early in order to pray, this is something that um, I've no doubt he, he read of in the scriptures. We find this in a couple of places in the Psalms, in Psalm 119, that long, the longest psalm. He, he really unfolds this, this intimate walk with God. He says in one place, Psalm 119, verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. I rise before dawn and hope in your help. In the fifth psalm, um, David's psalm, he says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David sort of likens his practice of getting up early in the morning in order to pray to what was happening in the temple each day as the priests got about their business early in the morning and began preparing the animal sacrifices in order to prepare, first thing, a sacrifice for God. And he says, this is how, this is the pattern after which I live my prayer life. So Jesus seems to me to be merely walking in that example that he would have read in the scriptures that he knew from childhood. And the more interesting question to me is not just the practice, why the fact that he got up early in order to pray, but the question why. What, what is it that, that motivated Christ to get up and to devote himself to prayer as the first thing he did in the morning? And I think that the answer, and this is really the principle I want you to understand here, is that I think he was doing it as a way of consecrating the entirety of his time to God. This is a spiritual principle, and you see this in various ways in the scriptures. And let me explain it to you through the analogy of giving. When we were just hearing about the Christian sort of um, uh, call to be generous with our finance, and in particular to give, and the pattern that you see all the way through scripture, particularly begins with the life of Abraham but runs right through into the New Testament, is that Christians are called to give particularly the tenth of their income to God. And the question is, is it because God only owns a tenth of what we possess? And the answer is absolutely not. The principle is rather that God owns everything that you have. And the giving of a tenth is a way of signifying to God that the whole belongs to him. We give a portion in order to signify the whole. Now this applies not just to your finance, but also applies to time. When you think about the way the Sabbath functioned in the Old Testament, it tells us in the Ten Commandments that they were to, to set aside a day as holy 
or is consecrated to the Lord. And it wasn't the case that only one day belonged to God. The people of God were called to give the entirety of their time to him. But the devotion of a portion of time and of the Sabbath was a way of symbolizing that the whole belonged to God. You consecrate a portion in order to say everything is yours, God, of your money, of your time, and of many other things. And I think that that's the principle that's at work here. When you see Christ and others in the scripture giving time in this way to God in this deliberate act of prayer. And it's quite distinct, isn't it, from the fact that, you know, Paul says pray without ceasing. I think it was C.H. Spurgeon who said that I'm never 15 minutes out of prayer. That there's a sense in which the Christian lives and walks with God in intimacy in momentary <coughs> communication with him, like Nehemiah did in the first chapter where he, he walked into the presence of the king and then he shot up a prayer to God uh, out of his heart. And I think the Christian lives in prayer constantly in this way. However, that is not to the exclusion of dedicating a portion of time in the day in which you're saying this time is for God exclusively as a way of dedicating all your time to him. And I think that this is the pattern that we see in Christ's life. All of Christ's moments belong to the Father. But he set aside these moments of of, of dedication, of consecration of himself to the Father in this way in order to make that clear. Now, when I talk about the fact that he got up early in this way, I just want to offer a couple of cautions here. I think, yeah, because you all feel the collective groan, right? Um, The first caution is that I, I think, fundamentally, I want you to understand that I think a legalistic approach to this will hurt you and not help you. And I'll give you a couple of reasons for that. One is that, There's always a danger in the Christian life that you fall into what um, Jerry Bridges described as the good day, bad day syndrome, which is the experience that many Christians are familiar with, that when you start your day off right, and you feel, you know, you read your Bible, you prayed, and and you, you got up with a leap of joy, and the rest of the day seems to unfold along those terms. You feel good about yourself, and you think that you are under the grace of God because it's a good day. And then another day happens when you, the alarm clock goes off and you, you throw it across the room and you roll over, you do the groan and go back to sleep. And it's like the whole of your day is affected by the fact that you've, you've missed your routine and you feel like God's distant, that there's a coldness in your relationship with him. And of course, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way the grace of God functions in the life of the believer. Now, I think this is more just to do with our hard, hardwiring as legalistic creatures. I, you know, I've, I've, having read a, f- a few kind of the secular productivity gurus, I know a number of them who think this way. Uh, one of them describes his morning routine that consists of about 15 things he has to do before breakfast. And, um, and he says, unless I do these things, it's like the whole day is ruined. And I think that is an utterly flawed way for the Christian to think, yes. as though God only loves you <laughs> if you've given time to him in the morning. I don't think that's how the Christian life functions at all. And I think that mentality will, will cause you more to fall into the rhythms of legalism than of grace. Grace of the Father knowing you and loving you and welcoming you into his presence. There's a caution that you ought to be aware of and, and, and understand. The problem is that, you know, on the days when you do pray, you'll feel puffed up with pride and feel wonderful about yourself. On the days when you don't, you feel in the pits like, like, you're, like you're rubbish. When the righteousness of Christ is yours, 
Another caution I'd add to that is that, I, you know, the fundamental heart of what we're trying to say here is that we are striving for a living relationship with the Father. Yes. And it seems to me that if you turn that into a method or a routine, then you're cutting against the very heart of what it means to know God. Yeah. I, you know, you think about my relationship with my children. If I said to them, look, every day between 5.30 and 6, before dinner, that's my time with you. And one day they're in their room playing or whatever, and I say, well, you missed your slot, kids. I'm very sorry, but that's it. You know, would that speak of the love of a father to a child? And there's no way in which the God relates to us in that way. Like, you missed, you missed it this morning. That's it. You're in my bad books for the rest of today. This is a living relationship with, with the holy God. And it, it seems, when I read the Bible, you know, Jesus' pattern obviously was at times to pray early. He also prayed at other times of day. Sometimes he prayed all night. Sometimes he went off in the evening. When you read the, the stories of the Bible, you discover Isaac meditating in the fields at dusk when, I, when Rebecca is brought to him by the servant to be his, 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 um, his new wife. So it seems to be his pattern that at dusk he'd go out into the field and meditate and be with God. You find Daniel praying three times each day as he would kneel towards Jerusalem in his room. You find Peter at lunchtime in Acts uh, 10 where he's praying and he's caught up in a trance. And I, I often think, well, probably he's praying at lunch because he slept in that morning and missed his, his daily prayer time that morning. And so He's a human, right? So I think it's important that you don't get locked into the... The point is not when Christ prayed. The point is rather that he consecrated time to the Father each day as a way of saying, all of my time is yours, Father. And I want to provoke you with that and ask you, is your time consecrated to God? Are you conscious that you are living under his watchful gaze at a life that is for his glory? And I think that that can be fostered in a deep and meaningful way by the giving of time to him like this. He got up early. Here's the second thing I want to show you. He got away from people. Do not disturb, Howard remind us at the beginning. He got away from people. Now, Mark tells us that rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out. They're obviously staying in someone's house in Capernaum, probably Simon Peter's house in Capernaum. And no doubt there were lots of people on floors in various rooms because there was a lot of excitement around Jesus and the house is full. Before any of them woke up, Jesus is up and he's out of the door. And the question I want to ask with you is, why was it so important to him that he get away from others in order to pray? Why did he physically need to remove himself from that context, not only from the house but also from the town and get away on it by himself? And I don't want to merely talk about distraction. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. And, I, and not is, nor do I think this is about him being in nature. I think that can be helpful, but Jesus also tells us to pray in our rooms. That's not, I don't think that's the fundamental reason here. I think to understand what was going on with Christ here, you need to understand something of the breathless hurry that was the context of this chapter. Nine times in Mark chapter 1, you read the word immediately. We read a couple of them, like in, from verse 29. Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon. And it says, immediately they told him about Simon's sick mother, and he healed her. There's this, all through Mark chapter 1, there's this sense of um, 
of, of rushing into the next thing and the next thing and of people's... You see these clamoring needs crowding around Jesus. Look at verse 32. It tells us that that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So just as Jesus is wanting to wind down for the night after a busy day, the house is packed out with people. And they're not just... You know, these are sick, needy people and demon-oppressed people who I think would have had the appearance of being slightly crazy. And this is what was pressing around him. It tells us that the whole city was gathered together at the door. Wow. You see this pressure on him immediately, immediately, immediately. They're bringing all these people to him. And even when Jesus extracts himself from that situation early that morning, goes off to go and pray, Peter has to go looking for him. What do you find Peter saying to him? Simon and those who are with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. So there's, this is, Jesus, it seems to me, is surrounded by people and demands and needs. And I, wanna, I want you to consider this for a second. What is the danger when that is the kind of tempo of your life? What's the danger? And the answer, I think, is that his day could have just unfolded answering people's needs and demands. And that this is perhaps how you also live your life. And if I can put it like this, I think it's possible to live your life in a very reactive way. And it seems to me to be a greater danger now than ever because of the immediacy of people being able to contact us at all times. That yeah. You wake up and the first thing you do in the morning is see your phone and all the email notifications or messages that have been left for you. And immediately your thoughts are crowded with the demands of others. And I, I want to suggest to you that that is a very dangerous thing. What can happen over the long term, of course, when this is the pattern of your life? And, you know, if it's one day or a couple of days like that, that's okay. But what happens when that is the chronic pattern of your life, that you are bouncing around from one need to another, is that you experience over the course of the long haul what you can describe as a kind of mission drift. That your, your whole life feels busy but not fruitful. That your whole life feels constantly full, that you're chasing various demands and needs and urgent things that seem urgent, but you, you're not quite sure what you're doing with your life at the same time, or what your life is fundamentally heading towards, or what it's about, or what you're seeking to do for God. And I think that what Jesus showed us here is something of the ideal that we ought to try and call ourselves back to. I, I want you to think of it like this. I think this is the principle that's at work here. And the reason why he departed and went out, as Mark told us, I think it's a desire to put the Father first, in, not just in his time, but also in his agenda, in his plans, in his obedience, in his sense of what he was meant to be doing with his day. Now, the reason why I say that is, look what happens. Jesus goes out and prays. And it says, Simon... He finds him and he says, everyone is looking for you. But what Simon doesn't realize as he comes and he presents the needs of the town to Jesus with that statement, what he doesn't realize is that it's too late. By that point, Jesus is invulnerable to, to the demands of others. 
because he's already settled in his heart and in prayer and in intimacy with the Father what it is he's meant to do next. Which is why he says, he responds to Peter and says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And it says he went through all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And you need to understand that for Jesus to have said no to Peter in that moment, he was saying no to many important opportunities to do good to other people. There were people in Capernaum who needed Christ's help. And Jesus had to say no to these people because he wasn't here to do every good thing that he could do. That wasn't Christ's calling. He was here on the Father's mission to do as the Father directed. And I I think this is so powerfully stated by Christ in John 5. In these striking words, just think about how extraordinary these words are. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I find that to be a puzzling and amazing statement. Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own accord. I only do what I see the Father doing. In other words, he lived this perfectly obedient life in which, in a momentary way, even moment by moment, he knew what he was here to do and was walking very deliberately in the calling and the specific purposes that the Father had for him. You contrast that with how how easily our lives become like like those balls in, in, the, um, in, the, in the machines that bounce around like a ball bearing, just from one demand to another. Whereas Christ, if I can put it like this, there's a sense in which his whole existence, he knew what it was to be centered. But not centered upon himself, as is in a kind of non-attached way like we hear of in Eastern religions, but centered upon the Father. You can imagine how much peace and liberation that brought to Christ in his experience of what it means to obey the Father. He knew what he was there to do. And he would not be sidetracked by people's demands. He got away. He spoke to the Father. And then he obeyed him. And I want to ask you the question, is your life led by the demands of others? And there's nothing wrong, of course, with responding to people's needs. But is it led by that? Or led by obedience to the Father. Let me tell you a third thing. Jesus sought solitude. He got up early to give his time to God. He got away from people so that his agenda would be dictated by the Father and not by others. But here's a third aspect. He sought solitude. And this is a different thing. Mark tells us that rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. Now, it's an amazing thing in the Gospels that you, you discover that this was, this was Jesus' habit. This is an extraordinarily powerful um, spiritual discipline, actually, of solitude. We know it already from earlier in Mark's Gospel. That what did he do the moment he was baptized and came up out of the water? What was the next thing he did? He was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, completely alone, for 40 days and 40 nights. There's a similar um, 
account to the one we're reading in, in Luke chapter 5 where he tells us about a sequence of miracles and wonderful things that are happening and, uh, and, and the clamor that surrounds Jesus. And in Luke 5.15 it says, Now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds uh, were gathered to him and to be healed of their infirmities. So there's people streaming in from towns and villages all around to come and find Jesus. But then Luke adds this comment. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now, what I think you have to see in this habit of of the Lord Jesus is this desire in his heart to give God his best. And what I mean by that is to give the Father his full attention when he came in prayer. Attention is one of the very few resources that we have control over in our lives. Perhaps the most important of them all. It's what you're doing in this moment. The thing you're doing is paying attention. You're always spending your attention, moment by moment, on something. And it's a very vital resource. What you look at often dictates the direction of your life. That's why Jesus said that that we ought to have the single eye is what it says literally in one passage, that to be absolutely single-mindedly devoted to God. How are you spending your attention really dictates the direction and course of your life. It's a precious resource. And I think one of the reasons why Christ extracted himself from people but also sought to find complete solitude was to allow himself to be fully attentive to the Father as he prayed. Now, I say this against the backdrop that all of us recognize of one of the greatest threats to our joy and well-being in our day and age, which is distraction. I think we live in the most distracted age. And if you ask me the question, why is it? I mentioned at the start some of the, I think some of the problems that we're seeing in the church at large in our nation at this time and the kind of low level of piety or of godliness or of, of, being, of, the, of the simple practice of walking with God, if you ask the question why, why is there such a low spiritual state at large? Why is it so hard to call people to a life of holiness in which they are putting to death the flesh and pursuing Christ wholeheartedly? Why is it that so many people are, are anxious in their day-to-day instead of exuding the peace and the joy of God that's our birthright in Christ? Why is it that there's so little steady commitment to God and to his church and to a steady growth in the Christian life? Why is there so much biblical illiteracy? You ask all those kinds of questions that kind of look at the, the question of spiritual health from different angles. One of the main answers you can give to them all is the problem of distraction. And I think all, so many of our spiritual issues can be, can be rooted in that problem. Now, I, I've noticed just in some of the books I've been reading that this is an issue that is being recognized not just by Christians but also in the secular world as one of the great problems of the day and age in which we live. And of course, the primary reason for that is because we are constantly connected. We're never truly alone. And that has a that has a, a wearying and damaging effect on us in all kinds of ways that we haven't fully yet understood. 
I read a book um, by a guy called Cal Newport who wrote the book Digital Minimalism. And it's a fascinating book, and I highly recommend it. Um, he's not writing as a Christian, but he's, he's trying to articulate some of the problems that are arising through our experience of constant distraction. And uh, one of the examples he gives of this, he, he spoke with a, a lady who was the head of mental health services at a university in the United States. And her work to that point had been dealing with what she described as the normal issues that affected a, a percentage of the students. And she mentioned things like homesickness, um, the eating disorders, and some depression and some OCD, and the kinds of things that she expected to, to deal with in her counseling situation in her office. But then she said, she, she said this. She said, then everything changed. Seemingly overnight, the number of students seeking mental health counseling massively expanded And the standard mix of teenage issues was dominated by something that used to be relatively rare, anxiety. She's saying that there was a step change that can be put down to a specific moment when suddenly all the students were experiencing this chronic, paralyzing anxiety. I know just from conversations as well as the reading that I've engaged in around this subject that there there is a there is something of an anxiety epidemic in our day and age. I think there are multiple causes for that, but one of them is rooted in this problem that, that we are constantly distracted. Similarly, um, there's a lady called Jean Twenge, who's a sociologist in the United States, and her job is to chart generational changes. She researches generational changes of all kinds, moral changes, psychological changes, changes in mental health, all kinds of things from you know, right the way through from like the early 1900s, generation after generation, with whatever data she can get a hold of. And that's her expertise. And she's very vocal about this problem of distraction, particularly through digital, the digital invasion of our life. And she said this in an article called Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? She said, around 2012, I noticed abrupt shifts in teen behaviors and emotional states. The gentle slopes of the line graphs, so when you can chart you know, instances of, of, uh, of depression or of other mental health issues, the gentle slopes that go up and down, she said, became steep mountains and sheer cliffs. And many of the distinctive characteristics of the millennial generation began to disappear. In all my analyses of generational data, some reaching back to the 1930s, I had never seen anything like it. And she pins it all down to our, this, the experience of being constantly connected and the way that that is chipping away at people's ability to think and to know peace and to know uh, well-being in their day-to-day. And I think that's fascinating that it just comes to us from a secular perspective. But this is actually not a new problem. It seems to me that you know, Jesus is living in the day and era before any of that was a problem. And even then, Jesus understood that for his own spiritual health, He had to find time completely and utterly alone. Why? You can think of it negatively and positively. Negatively, I think Jesus knew what would hinder his prayers. He knew what would disrupt his ability to give full attention to the Father in prayer. And positively, he knew what would allow him to foster 
great fervency in prayer and intimacy with the Father with prayer, the ability to listen carefully as well as to articulate what was truly on his heart in prayer. And the answer that he demonstrates to us and which some of you need for the sake of your health as well as for the sake of your spirituality is to understand the potency of solitude. Are you ever truly alone to listen to God is the question and to speak to him? Is it a practice in your life? Now let me show you one last thing. Mark tells us the fourth practical aspect of Jesus' prayer life is that he actually prayed. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And why am I drawing your attention to this obvious final point? It's because of this. I think that you know, even when you do everything right, you know, you 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 get up, you get up before sun rises. By the way, I, I don't do that. It makes me sin more, I found. But, but find the time that's suitable to you. Um, you get up, whatever. You, you dedicate time to God. You get away from people and their demands. You, you find solitude. Even if you line up all these things, to pray is still a challenge. And for some, it can be near impossible. You ask the question, why is it so difficult to pray? And I think there are external forces and internal forces. I think externally, of course, we understand that this is a spiritual battle. And to, to downgrade prayer as though it was not a spiritual battle is to find ourselves unprepared for prayer. But internally, you know, this is the problem. Even if you're alone, you're still there with your thoughts, aren't you? And there are internal struggles that hinder us in our prayer life. It can, I think the most prominent of them all is unbelief. The question of whether my prayer is really going to be heard. There are questions about how to pray. There are the, the thoughts that you bring with you into prayer of all the anxieties that are living with you and, and, and various other things crowding your mind. And so for these reasons, it seems to me that even when everything is aligned you may still find it difficult to pray. And the last question I want to ask with you as we think about this was why is it that Jesus was able to pray? What is it that gave him that, the sense of ability and consistency and confidence in prayer? And I think the answer has to do with his understanding of himself as, as, son, as the son. His sense of sonship. It's, one of the, it's the thing that we learn about him first in Mark's Gospel, that when he is baptized and comes up out of the Jordan River, the Father's voice comes out of the heavens and says, this is my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. An affirmation to Jesus. With you I am well pleased. And I think that even when, you know, just putting all the practical elements aside of what makes prayer possible, at its heart, prayer has to be founded upon and built upon this understanding of sonship. Christ walked in that. He knew the perfect intimacy of a son to a father. He knew that he was welcome into the father's presence. He knew that the father would listen to his words. 
He knew that the Father would be responsive to his words. He knew that he could listen to what the Father was saying also. That's what a father-son relationship is all about. It's what Christ had enjoyed through eternity and what he was now deliberately kindling and fostering in his humanity, the sense of sonship. And the reason why I stress that for you, friends, is because the Bible shows us that prayer is birthed out of sonship. That even, if I can put it like this, I think that you're going to be in great danger if your prayer life takes on the characteristics of a duty or of a discipline. It's not that discipline isn't required, it certainly is, but if you think of it as a discipline, we use the language of spiritual disciplines, and I think it can be quite unhelpful in some regards. Because it, it becomes something that's just merely in your calendar, something that you, you kind of move through the motions in doing. And rather, I think what the Father wants us to understand, above all, is that prayer is, comes out of the spirit of sonship. It comes out of the, the knowledge that the Christian is somebody who is regarded with the same pleasure with which the Father viewed the Son. When the Father said, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased, anyone who has become a Christian, who has put their faith in Christ, you have to understand that, in a sense, in a legal sense, you are in exactly the same situation as Jesus himself when you go to speak with the Father. You have been adopted into his family, the New Testament tells us. Which is why the whole Trinity is at work in your prayer life. You approach the Father, but you do so through the Son, we're told. He has gained you access into the Father's presence and by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us and who witnesses with our spirit that we are the sons of God and cries out, Abba, Father. So even when you push aside all the practical elements of prayer, and to be honest, it doesn't really matter to me how you go about doing your prayer life. What matters is that it comes out of this sense of sonship, the sense that you belong, the sense that the Father wants you to know him and to be close to him. And the only reason why that's possible, friends, is because we come under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Adopted into his family, purchased by him. And I want us to just consider that for a moment as we're about to take communion. It may be the case that you feel like you've been away from the Father for a long time. That your prayer life is disappointing to non-existent. And you may be asking yourself the question, well, how do I go about rekindling this or even if you have a regular prayer life you understand that it seems to be fairly routine in comparison with what we've been thinking about the life of Jesus in prayer and you ask how do you rekindle this how can you truly pray and friends it has to begin with understanding that we come by faith through the son and I want us to just to I want us to bow our heads. I think this is a moment in which we can experience the sweetness of repentance and of confession, but also the acceptance of the Father and the invitation of the Father to reawaken 
this love relationship with him. Some of you will need to leave today and do something immediately to correct the chronic problem of prayerlessness in your life. You may need to go and find a desolate place today. You don't put it off till tomorrow. I encourage you to take action today. Go and repent before the Father at length and tell him how you want to change. But even in taking those actions, there is nothing more important than that you do so with the understanding that he says, come. That he says, welcome. That he invites you back. It may be the case that you're not a Christian and you don't understand how it's possible to know God. You don't understand how it's possible to pray and to know that he hears you. Father, we recognize and understand and acknowledge that uh, there is a long way to go. Some of us sort of never prayed. Some of us have forgotten how to pray. And some of us, our prayer lives have become stale and routine. Lord, when we consider the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died so that we would know the Father, we're all the more struck by the thought that this is our birthright, to be able to walk with you, to be able to know you intimately, to be able to speak to you and to know that you listen. And that to live the Christian life short of this is in a sense, functionally, to live as though we're not saved. So Father, we bring to you all of our miserable failure and confess it to you, knowing that you forgive, knowing that you love us, knowing that you love it when we return to you. We pray, Lord, I pray, Father, would you rekindle in this congregation and among these people a longing to be people of prayer, that their prayer meetings together, when they pray together as the church often did in the New Testament, that they find an energy and a zeal and an intimacy in that moment that would energize everything else they do. But Lord, also that these people would know the sweetness of prayer in their own lives, Lord, of being centered on you and of knowing what it is to, to walk with you, to keep in step with the Spirit. So we receive the bread, we receive the wine, and with our confession, we accept your forgiveness and receive it fully, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to us. Amen. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.